Latino Stories, Historias Latinas, es un podcast que nace del proyecto de narrativas orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos en Ohio, con entrevistas en español, inglés, and Spanglish. Welcome to Latino Stories. I'm Elena Fowles. My guest today is Monica Ramirez. Monica is an activist, attorney, and the founder of the nonprofit organization called Justice for Migrant Women. For over two decades, she has fought for the civil and human rights of women, children, workers, Latinas, Latinos, and immigrants. As part of her work with Justice for Migrant Women, just this year, Monica worked alongside leaders in Washington to introduce numerous pieces of legislation, among them the Be Heard Act and the CARE Act, and was awarded the 2019 MAFO Lifetime Achievement Award. Monica is also an Ohio State alum. Welcome to this episode, Monica. Thank you. Monica, tell, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up? So I'm the proud daughter, granddaughter, family member, hermana, sobrina um, of farm workers who migrated for many, many years to Ohio and all around the country. Um, for me, that's the most important thing about my background. Um, I did eventually graduate from Ohio State and Harvard and other places, but it's really that upbringing in the farm worker community that's been most meaningful and impactful in my work and life. Um, but my family, after traveling you know, from Texas to Michigan and, and other places. My father actually spent a lot of time working in Mississippi. Um, they found their way to Ohio. And in Northwest Ohio, there's actually, uh, historically there have been a lot of farm workers that have come to the area to work in uh, the fields and my family was one of them. And so I was born and raised in a little town in Ohio called Fremont. Mm -hmm. You do advocacy work. Tell me about your interest in advocating for the rights of farm workers. And as you mentioned just now, there is a personal connection uh, with you in this in this group. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting because I think it was only like two years ago when people started to refer to me as an activist. <laughs> I never referred to myself as an activist. And um, even, you know, with my advocacy work, I think for many of us who are from the Latinx community, we've just done what's needed mm -hmm. in our community for our families. Mm -hmm. And that's really the start of my work. So um, I started organizing in our community, specifically in Fremont for the farm worker community when I was 14. Mm -hmm. I was really, really young and I was basically just very curious and essentially got my start by telling stories through the area newspaper. Um, and over time that developed into what is now and has been for years my career mm -hmm. um, advocating for improvements of conditions and rights for farm workers. And that history of my work is really rooted in the fact that my parents, my father who started working in the fields when he was eight years old, my mom who worked occasionally in the fields as a little girl as well with her grandparents who raised her, my great-grandparents, um, they knew well what the conditions were like working in the fields. And mm -hmm. so from the time I was a little girl, my parents talked to us about the fields and farm worker housing and things of that nature. So my advocacy is rooted in the personal experience of being from the farm worker community, but really was informed by the lived experiences of my parents. Right. And then that town, Freeman, like you mentioned, um, there was a lot of migrant workers. Were they pr primarily, it's a strong Mexican, Mexican-American community, correct? That's right. But you know, in Freeman, it's interesting because, first of all, the community has changed. But 
in the state of Ohio, we have approximately about 30,000 farm workers that come to the state. Um, there actually are fewer farm workers in our state now than before. So when my family was traveling to Ohio to pick cucumbers and steak tomatoes and things of that nature, um, there were many more farm workers and they were often families that traveled in groups. Mm -hmm. And many of those families were Mexican, Mexican-American, but there also was this very small population of Puerto Ricans mm -hmm. who came to the area and mm -hmm. first started as farm workers and then integrated into the community and took on other jobs. Um, in Ohio, the farm worker community is still overwhelmingly Mexican, mm -hmm. Mexican-American. Um, but we've seen that changing, too. Mm -hmm. There are fewer farm workers. There are fewer families, more single men who are being brought on, on guest worker visas. Mm -hmm. And we've also seen more workers who are um, from other countries like Guatemala and, and other places. Right. Well, today is December 13th, and uh, the reason why I'm asking, too, about the Mexican and Mexican-American presence in Fremont is because yesterday was El Dia de la Virgen de Guadalupe. Yes. Uh, was that, um, was there a celebrate? was there a celebration there in Fremont? Oh, a huge celebration. Actually, uh, they, uh, the celebration was observed on Saturday because they made it the diocesan celebration. So mm -hmm. the bishop came and, um, you know, but every year in Fremont, there's a big uh, Guadalupana event. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. there is a society in Fremont, Our Lady of Guadalupe Society. I think they call them the Guadalupanos. And mm -hmm. my, my father's part of that. My mm -hmm. mother's part of that. Mm -hmm. um, and growing up, I remember vividly all of the celebrations and not just the actual feast day, but right. in Fremont, we have the, the day before, there's always the um, offering of the roses. Mm -hmm. And I just remember as a little girl, going into the, the Catholic church where we attended. It was the only church that had Spanish mass in the area. So mm. so Latino families would come from all over Sandusky County and around to observe. Mm. And the and the church was always so packed, you mm. know, and it was there was a special energy and um and it was beautiful because I think that, you know, it was cultural, it was part of our, you know, our our cultural background, one of our most important celebrations. But I think also that feeling, sort of that special magic was just, it was, it was the feeling of being home amongst mm. one another. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. A few years ago, you started the Bandana Project, which is also uh, known as Artivism, a visual representation of the support to eradicate sexual violence in the workplace and everywhere. What's the impact you've seen as a result of this work? And, and here I'm asking again, you know, um, it's funny what you said. I've never um, identified or called myself an activist. And it's interesting that a lot of the work that you do has to do with that, right? Um, like what, even as a 14-year-old, I think the work that you were doing, you were probably also interpreting and doing things like that. And that um, in many ways, we're, we're called to do those things, even though we don't necessarily call ourselves activists right yeah I mean we're helping right right I mean we see all around us that there are needs like I remember you know my great-grandmother basically was my caretaker as a child and she was a monolingual Spanish speaker and I remember helping my grandma mm -hmm. you know communicate with other people at the stores and in different places and so that helping Desire was just mm -hmm. something that was sort of I was I was born with, and I think many of us can share that uh, quality. But you know, the Bandana Project, I think in many ways, um, my work, including the Bandana Project, has mm -hmm. been about bringing 
to the forefront people and issues Mm -hmm. that most people aren't seeing. And um, most people don't know that of the almost one million farm worker women in our country, one of the most prevalent problems they experience is sexual violence at work. Mm. And, um, you know, I remember reading an article, I was actually in law school at Ohio State when I started to build my first um, project that I created in Florida to serve farmworker women. Um, It was the first legal project in the entire country Mm. that was created to serve farmworker women in cases of gender discrimination, specifically sexual harassment. So I remember Mm. being at the law school and reading this article that kind of, you know, blew me away in that it talked about how farmworker women were using their clothes to protect themselves from sexual violence in the field, including bandanas, because they were obscuring the fact that they were women mm. in an attempt to try to keep attention off of themselves so they wouldn't fall victim to sexual violence. And I just remember thinking, like, wow, the fact that that they are trying to figure out essentially how to shield themselves from mm-hmm. this problem speaks to how terrible it is and how how frequently people are being exposed to the problem. So years later, in 2007, um, I was creating a project. It was uh, I'd created a national initiative to address sexual violence against farmworker women, and we were holding a national conference. And I wanted people at the conference to do something to show their commitment to end sexual violence against farmworker women. I wanted it to be visible, I wanted it to be concrete, and I wanted it to send a message both to the survivors that they weren't alone and to the perpetrators that what so many of my clients had told me about the perpetrators telling them that no one cared, no one wanted them here, no one Mm -hmm. was gonna help them. I wanted there to be a visual symbol to show the perpetrators that they were wrong and that there were many of us who were standing with farmworker women. And so that was really how the farm, that project, the banana project came to be. Um, we decided that we would decorate white bandanas. We would invite everyone at the conference to decorate white bandanas and to hang them at that conference. Mm. So it started with about 100 bandanas. And now, almost 16 years later, mm-hmm. it's insane. It, almost 16 years later, the project has taken on many different forms. Like, you know, there have been thousands of bandanas that have been decorated all across the United States, but they've been decorated in Mexico and Canada mm-hmm. and different parts mm-hmm. of the world. Um, the The project has evolved so that the women in Mexico who learned about the project, they said, we want to make this a symbol for the, maquila- the women working in maquiladoras. Mm-hmm. There were women who were working in Canada and guest worker visas, and they said, we want to use this project so that we can connect with people back home. And I think probably one of the most beautiful and powerful events that I experienced with this project was an event that was organized with Mexican migrant women in Canada mm-hmm. who were on visas and they had the event being basically simultaneously done in Mexico and Canada mm-hmm. and the mothers and daughters so the mothers who were caring for the daughters of the women who went to Mexico to work on visas, Mm -hmm. they participated in the project together. Mm -hmm. And it was incredible. And it speaks to the fact that, first of all, this issue isn't one that only affects migrant women in the United States. It's an issue that is unfortunately multi-generational because there are many women in our community and people, not just women, who experience sexual violence and sometimes more than once, mm-hmm. you know, as children, as adults, and as mm-hmm. migrant women migrating. And so the Bandana Project has, was started as something of a rallying cry to say that we were going to work to end sexual violence against farmworker women. But, you know, over the years, it's become, it's become an opportunity to talk about the problem. It's become 
a, a vehicle for making lawmakers pay attention. Mm-hmm. You know, Dolores Huerta talks about how um, she was struck by the fact that there was a farm worker woman who had used the bandana had been writing down things that were happening to her at work. Mm. And when she brought her case, her bandana became evidence in that case. Mm. So it's just, it's it took on a life of its own. And I'm so proud of that project. But what makes me proud of it is that it was embraced. People embraced it and they made it their own. And that is why the project has, I think, lasted so long, mm-hmm. spread so quickly. Um, my work is about making sure that that my work is not only my work, it's our work. Mm -hmm. And I think that that project is uh, an example of how that's happened. Right, right. Um, What you say is uh, important, right? Because the women have been victims or um, uh, targeted, you know, for um, sexual violence. And it starts... You can see it at, at at every level. So migrant workers to Hollywood people, right? And this is how the Time's Up movement came about. But what I really liked is this um, additional, like, calling out of, like, listen, this is not just a Hollywood thing, right? This is has has been happening to women in all at all levels um, throughout the years. And some of these populations are particularly even more vulnerable, right? Um, So during this uh, Time's Up movement in in 2017, you wrote the Dear Sisters open letter to the women of Hollywood from farm worker women that sparked the movement. Tell me about the gains you have seen from this, especially for the women that you represent. I think probably one of the most important gains was that right after that letter was published and went viral, you know, it got a lot of attention, um, in particular from the media. I remember receiving calls from the media, and they acted like no one had ever told them about it. And I remember receiving a call mm-hmm. from Time Magazine. Time Magazine actually published the letter. Right. Um, and I remember receiving a call from them, and they, I think in some ways maybe felt a little bit of shame that they hadn't covered the issue before. And so when people would ask me, well, why hadn't you told us or why didn't anyone come to us with this? I thought, are you kidding? We've spent decades trying to get your attention, mm-hmm. you know? And and so I think that for farm worker women at that particular moment, those who I was organizing with, number one, it was, it was finally an affirmation of what had been said for so many years. The pain that they had shared for so many years was being validated. But I think the other thing that happened was that very quickly um, there was an assumption that the women in in Hollywood were going to be helping the farm worker women because they created Time's Up. And we very quickly cleared up the fact that in our coming forward, we were helping the women in Hollywood, Mm. right? We were lending our strength and power and wisdom and years of organizing to them in a moment when they really needed that support. And and for those who are on the inside of that movement, the women in Hollywood who actually created Time's Up, they understood that, they saw that, they were so grateful and are still so grateful for that. But the outside impression was that, um, oh, it was so wonderful that these really powerful women were gonna help these quote unquote um, on these women who were not powerful, right? Mm-hmm, and and mm-hmm. I think for farm worker women who I am in community with, that was one of the most important outcomes was that we were able to say with clarity and strength, 
we always have had power. Mm-hmm. Farmworker women have always had power. It's just that um, they haven't had access mm-hmm. to be able to utilize that power. They didn't have the media paying attention to them in order to bring the stories forward. And and I think that was a a moment that then created the opportunity for us to continue to push for change because it equalized things, right? Mm-hmm. It wasn't just women working in the fields who were experiencing sexual violence. It was women in the C-suite. It was women in front of behind cameras that women from Wall Street came forward mm-hmm. in tech. And so then we started to see that what might have at one time been perceived as you know, a farm worker woman's problem or an immigrant woman's problem and that somehow that had something to do with them that they'd done wrong. I think people understood, no, this is a problem, mm-hmm. period, that exists in our society and it's something that we have to address. And these women who are paid $11,000 a year, who are treated so poorly, who who most people don't even think about every day, even though we benefit from their work every single day, these women not only have something to say about it, they have a lot to teach us about how we put an end to it. And and I think that that's been one of the most beautiful things that I've seen in this movement is really allowing farmworker women to be centered. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, great. Um, absolutely. I think, um, you know, just having different conversations from with different um, people in regards of um, communities that are marginalized. And when we talk about them and in terms of like, oh, they they need assistance, which is, yeah, there's part of that. But at the same time, they have agency, right? They understand their conditions, their um what they need and how to work to, through some of those problems, right? Um, so I think that's what you're you're saying, right? That people are empowered, even this uh, maybe underserved communities still have agency and and a, and a voice, right? To to tell us um, how to best solve their their issues. Yeah, I mean, I actually am of the mind that they are the best positioned. Like you know, I think that because I'm a lawyer, because I've gone, you know, I have these advanced degrees, people automatically consider me an expert. And I always reject that. I push back against that because I think that the only experts on a particular lived experience are the people who've lived them. And Mm -hmm. so to take away that title or that designation from farmworker women is not only wrong, but it's misguided because Mm -hmm. they know the answers and it's our job you know, if we're really doing our jobs, it is our job to listen carefully so that we can learn from them and be guided by them and, quite frankly, be directed by them. Right, right. Uh, Monica, you're the founder of Justice for Migrant Women. Uh, most recently, you have been working to provide uh, masks for farm workers, um, you know, during the pandemic. This this was a huge outreach initiative here in Ohio. What message are you hoping to send about this project And also, can you mention some of the partners that you had in this initiative? Yeah, so, I mean, I think that um, the pandemic relief that we engaged in over the past couple of years, um, first of all, farm workers have always needed this kind of support, right? We raised about $3 million and gave out about $3 million to farm worker organizations in Ohio and across the country. Um, and it was barely scratching the surface. It was for things like food mm-hmm. and diapers and things that farm workers have always needed. Mm-hmm. Um, the masks project, we also gave out um, you know, millions of masks to farm workers here in the state and other parts of the country and in Puerto Rico. All told, um, when you look at our masks project, 
our farm worker fund and the in-kind aid, it's about $10 million worth of humanitarian aid that we mm-hmm. were able to secure. And in Ohio, you know, we were able to get aid to the 30,000 farm workers in the state mm-hmm. over two seasons, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, that would not have been possible. 100% mm-hmm. none of it would have been possible if it weren't for our partners. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, here in the state of Ohio, first of all, we worked with the state. Mm-hmm. Um, we pushed we pushed on the state right. um, because we felt like there needed to be changes and there needed to be protections extended to farm workers. But we also worked in partnership with the state. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's important to mention that because as an advocate and activist, it's my role to push. It is my job to push. But we also have to find our common ground. And, mm-hmm. you know, this past summer, the state provided us with masks and hand sanitizer and things like that. So I'm grateful mm-hmm. for that. In particular, um, you know, the Ohio Latino Commission was mm-hmm. a huge help. And um, but we also worked with Able. We worked with La Conexión, mm-hmm. which is a great group that many of you might know. Um, you know, we've basically put together a coalition at this point that isn't even focused only on farm workers, but it's focused on essential workers broadly. So Jobs with Justice in Cleveland has been part of it. Uh, we worked with the Farm Worker Head Starts mm-hmm. and um, you know a lot of different groups here in the state and then across the country. Altogether, our partners on our humanitarian aid efforts are about 270 different organizations in 35 states and Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, So a lot of your work or most of your work is centered around, um, you know, the importance of acknowledging the work of farm workers and in different ways. Um, And so your newest campaign, among many others, which I want you to mention too, <laughs> is this um, Humans Who Feed Us. Can you tell us about this, this campaign? Yeah, so, you know, over the years, I've heard over and over again, people talk about the hands that feed us. Mm-hmm. And every time mm-hmm. I get so irked <laughs> because I'm like, why are we talking about the hands? What about the people, mm-hmm. right? The people, the full human beings who mm-hmm. feed us. And so I had this opportunity, uh, you know, as someone in the country who does culture shift and narrative work, I was invited to uh, apply for a fellowship through the Butterfly Lab, which was hosted by Race Forward. It was funded by different foundations who came together to create it, and 18 of us participated as fellows. And we were given a, a small grant to create a pilot, and the focus really was on narrative shift for immigrants in mm-hmm. the country. And so with that opportunity, I decided to create a pilot around um, sort of I wanted to shift this this thinking around the hands Mm -hmm. to the humans. And so um, the humans who feed us is a narrative and portrait project that focuses on immigrant workers. Now it's been expanded. So it's immigrant workers across the food supply chain. Mm -hmm. And um, but it started with eight workers in Ohio Mm -hmm. and we um, did the pilot in Fremont at the Sandusky County Fair. And for me, that was so important because I grew up there. I went to the Sandusky County Fair every single year growing up. And even though it's a it's an event that is centered on agriculture, farm workers were not present. Mm. And so it was really meaningful to me to be able to have an exhibit, a booth at the fair mm. that showed the power, the strength, the beauty of these incredible community members. And it was really wonderful 
to watch people engaging with the exhibit. I had people coming into the exhibit. We had people coming into the exhibit talking about how they were farm workers or their grandparents were farm workers. There was this teen who brought like six other kids with them. He was like clearly like the leader of the pack. And he was like, <laughs> my grandma was a farm worker. And he was so proud. And then Aww. all the kids looked at the pictures. And um, But now, you know, the project has grown. And so we have 22 individuals that we've interviewed so far that are working in restaurants, grocery stores, in on dairy farms, you know, so really thinking like who are all the people mm-hmm. who bring food to our tables? And like, mm-hmm. you know, if you want to talk about hands, like how many hands, right, right, and humans are responsible for bringing food to us? And I think that in this moment uh, during COVID, as the pandemic continues and we question the sustainability of our food system, mm-hmm. this allows us to talk no, not only about what we consume, but what is the cost for consuming that? And in particular, the human cost, because there have been Sadly, there have been thousands and thousands of workers in the food supply chain who've gotten sick with COVID and who've died. And so Mm -hmm. we've also wanted to use this as an opportunity to talk about the human cost of these individuals who literally put their lives in the line to feed us. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Monica, you're a busy woman, mom, and an inspiration to many of us. Is there anything else you would like to share about your work? And also, how can we support it? How, How can we be part of it? Well, I think the most important thing I want to leave folks with is people ask me all the time, like, how did you become an activist or how could I become an activist? And the truth is, I think we just all have to make a decision to do, just do something Mm -hmm. about something that we care about, whether it's children or animals or, you know, working with folks in the food supply chain like like I work with. We just have to make a commitment to doing something to make the world better. And that might be donating to an organization or it could be talking about this interview that you're listening to. Mm-hmm. That is how you be an act, can become an activist and that is how you can make change. I think people take for granted the fact that it is one-on-one conversations that actually plant mm-hmm. the seeds for change. And so that's my invitation to folks. Like, Don't think about it as being... Um, a requirement to start a nonprofit organization mm-hmm. or a movement or a campaign. Start with those one-on-one conversations and from there, pursue your interests and in particular, pursue those interests locally because there's a lot of great organizations on the ground that need support. Um, I would encourage folks to follow us. You know, um, you, they can find us on, uh, the website is www.justice, the number four, women.org so it's www.justice4women.org we're also on social media and our handle's kind of hard but I'll spell it now <laughs> it's Mujerx Rising so it's M-U-J-E-R-X-S Rising we wanted to be make sure that we were giving a nod to our non-binary mm-hmm. siblings so mm-hmm. Mujerx Rising and we're on Instagram, Twitter and also on Facebook and then you know um, and then as you said I'm really busy so I actually have a couple of other organizations that I want you to check out too one of them is called the Latinx House which focuses on um, the representation of Latinx people in our country mm-hmm. in entertainment, media, museums and publishing um, we're really focusing on celebrating the excellence of the Latinx Latine community so check that out and then the other most recent initiative that I helped to co-found is called Poderistas, which mm-hmm. is centering the power of Latinas across our country. Yes. Monica, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I'm so happy that we could finally have it, and I'm happy to be back 
back home. It's really lovely. <laughs> a todos, gracias por escucharnos y recuerden seguirnos en Facebook y de compartir este podcast con otros. Hasta la próxima. Thank you.